Hey gang, let's talk some more about the relation between law and morality and get back to Lon Fuller again, this time to hear his side of the so-called Hart-Fuller debate. Now the primary dispute in this debate is over the role of morality in law. And that might seem kind of abstract, and a lot of this debate does sound in abstract ideals. But as you could gather from this reading, the relation between morality and law was, at this time, and even now, an urgent question. What you read was published only a little more than 13 years after the liberation of Auschwitz, and a little less than that after the Nuremberg trials. So the horrors of the Holocaust, you know, this unimaginable evil, was nearly as fresh in the mind at the time this was written as 9-11 is for us today. And I know you guys are all young and you were young when 9-11 happened, but that's not a lot of time. And especially for something of this scale, the, the scale of death and destruction was just so vastly greater than the mind could imagine. And, and the angst here is over how to come to terms with technocratic genocide. You know, not lawless, out-of-control armies raping and pillaging the kinds of brutalities that, you know, the world was all too familiar with. But this was mass killing carried out under the most exacting detail and under a system that looked for all the world like law, and in fact, kind of the most meticulous kind of law. And so there's this crisis concerning what law is. Does law and adherence to law keep us from committing the most heinous atrocities? Well, the Holocaust and the end of World War II suggest maybe not. And so there's a reexamination here of uh, attitudes toward law and toward sovereignty and what sovereigns are. Now, we know from last time what Hart thought about this. You know, Hart believed that what's required is a constant critical attitude toward authority, an attitude that asks about one's own obligations. Should I follow the law? Is it moral to follow the law? Not asking abstractly whether something is the law. It's not an empty search for the existence or non-existence of law, but recognizing that the law is, whatever the system says law is, there's still this individual, urgent moral question about whether you should follow it. Fuller could not disagree more with that understanding of law. Let's get started with, uh, I, I included just a few pages from his book, The Morality of Law. And in this book, he argues that law necessarily must accord with certain moral principles. All right, now this is, I won't say quite the opposite of Hart, because there are many people who disagree with Hart's basic premise that the connection between law and morality is contingent only, that it is not necessary. Fuller believes it's necessary, but in a particular way. So for Fuller, it's not that law must conform to certain moral principles, substantive moral principles that we could discover through the exercise of human reason or through religious practice. It's not that. It's not substantive moral principles that govern the law from on high, but an, what he calls an inner morality. And these are really procedural constraints on how law is made and how it's conducted. Now, the larger debate here, as we'll see, is over exactly what are the grounds of law. That is, what reasons do we have to have in order to say that something is the law? What gives us reason to say that and to think of something as the law? Does the creation of moral obligation figure into those reasons? And if you read this and, and you kind of got a sense of 
that there might be some talking past one uh, one another uh, between Hart and Fuller. I get that because for Fuller, as we'll see, it's you, you can't even talk about what law is without thinking about what obligations, moral obligations, it imposes on those who live under it. And for Hart, of course, the question of whether you are morally obligated to follow the law is a further question, a different question, than whether something is the law. All right, we'll see how that debate plays out in what follows. Hopefully the excerpt that I provided gives you, in a nutshell, the outlines of Fuller's big idea. He argues for this idea through... Uh, a characteristically imaginative story. If you think back to the Splunkian explorers, here you'll find another story, this of the hapless ruler Rex, that if you follow it along, maybe some things seem inevitable. And here the story is of a legal system that is constantly failing because Rex fails to understand what law really is. And through it, Fuller elaborates eight different routes to the failure of a system to become a legal system. And let me just go through them. The first is the lack of rules at all. Instead, only ad hoc and inconsistent adjudication. Living under such a system, you wouldn't know how to behave. You won't know how how you should have behaved until you're brought before Rex and Rex pronounces on the legality of what you've done. Second, the system fails to achieve the status of law if it fails to publicize or make known the rules of law. Secret laws for fuller aren't really laws at all. Third, unclear or obscure legislation that's impossible to understand, which kind of like secret legislation gives absolutely no notice to anyone. Fourth, retroactive legislation, laws that again cannot possibly provide a guide to conduct as they don't even exist until after the conduct has occurred. Fifth, law that is shot through with contradictions, so again it's difficult to determine what the rules are. Really, all of the first five speak to a situation in which there really are no rules from the perspective of someone living under them, from the perspective of someone who is not Rex or the ruler. The next one, though, number six, is not quite the same. You know what the law is, but it demands things from you that are beyond your power. So maybe like a law requiring you to levitate. Seventh, unstable legislation. This is where law is not secret, where it's maybe publicized, but it's publicized too often. So the law is always changing and it's impossible to keep up with. And finally, the eighth route to failure is a divergence between adjudication and legislation. So while there may be some rules publicized, those rules aren't actually what determine the result in any kind of dispute. So those are the eight routes of failure. And for Fuller, those form the criteria for a legal system. These are the principles of intermorality of the law. And unless law possesses such an intermorality, it's not law at all. It is not a legal system. So think about this. Do you think the your money or your life gunman that we've talked so much about is a lawgiver? Is that a legal system? And, and if not, why not? It, it does seem to meet a lot of those criteria. Which Which ones doesn't it meet? Or how would you explain how that is not a legal system if you are a follower of Fuller? Now, Fuller's basic argument here is that there cannot be a moral obligation to obey a legal rule that is inconsistent with these principles. You can't have a moral obligation to obey a rule that doesn't actually exist or is secret or is made ex post after your conduct. If there's no moral obligation to follow a rule, then, Fuller says, 
that rule can't really be a part of the law because law is identical with the set of official rules we have a moral obligation to follow. There you might put the words official in quotes because you may have moral obligations to follow many different kinds of rules. The rules of the system are the ones which, and I think here he would agree, are identified by the system as rules, but where those rules, in addition to formal legal authority, have some kind of moral authority. Here's what Fuller says. There's a kind of reciprocity between government and the citizen with respect to the observance of rules. Government says to the citizen, in effect, these are the rules we expect you to follow. If you follow them, you have our assurance that they are the rules that will be applied to your conduct. When this bond of reciprocity is finally and completely ruptured by government, nothing is left on which to ground the citizen's duty to observe the rules. Okay? And when that duty is gone, we know, Fuller says, so too is the law. Let's look at Fuller's direct reply to Hart. These kinds of back and forths, I, I always like to read because I feel like I learn more about each person's point of view when I read or hear them talking to one another. The piece starts out by framing the disagreement. And, and I particularly like this quote from Fuller. He says, The respect we owe to human laws must surely be something different from the respect we accord to the law of gravitation. Curious, right? Because in Hart's concept of law, we see, too, a, a distinction between physical laws and laws of the system, Fuller is kind of turning that around and saying that human laws are characterized by the respect that they're given. They are nothing if they don't call us to action. So to deserve loyalty, the law must be more than fiat. It must entail the moral obligation to follow it. And, and so the argument here is that we care not about what law is, but why we obey it, why we have this sense of fidelity. And this is the key distinction between Hart and Fuller. For Fuller, without obedience, there is no law. Whereas, of course, we know from Hart, obedience is unnecessary. Whether a law commands obedience is a further moral question. All right, section one, basically the what is law section. Here Fuller notes the heterogeneity of the realists in defining law and sovereignty. They're kind of all over the place. Is a sovereign unlimited? Can it be limited? What should we make, for example, of the provision in our United States Constitution, Article 5, that forbids amendments which would deprive the states, at least without their consent, of equal Senate representation? What do you make of that? Is that legitimate? Could such an unamendable item be the subject of crisis? What is the law there? The positivists never give a useful guide to the use of conscience in obeying the law or not obeying the law, according to Fuller. What is the law, he says, if it doesn't imply a claim over conscience? So I'll ask you guys, I mean, even at this point, is the man on the street corner yelling edicts, yelling rules? I think I referred to him in, in the last conversation. Is he a lawmaker? So too, as I asked earlier, is the gunman in a, your, your money or your life situation, is, is he or she a lawmaker? Let's move to section two, the definition of morality. Here's the argument to which Fuller is responding in this section. If law's validity is determined not only by social facts, but also by principles of morality, whatever the source, whether they're procedural or substantive, then perhaps those principles of morality can be used in evil ways. There's always the danger that evil morals will be determined as the trump card. If a law that conflicts with morality is no law at all, then we are at the whim of those empowered to apply those moral principles. What if they do so for evil rather than for good? This is a version of the argument that 
natural law, in fact, gives too much power to those charged with administering the principles of natural law, because those principles might be kind of slippery, and they can kind of get wherever they want to go with them. The argument should be familiar to you as, you know, you think about doctrines like substantive due process and other more standard-like principles of constitutional law that are often critiqued as giving too much power to judges. Well, so too, if natural law principles are a trump over our law, then anyone charged with administering those has tremendous power to shape our law. Well, here's how Fuller responds. First, he says, it's just not true that evil aims have as much coherence and inner logic as good ones. And here's what he says. When men are compelled to explain and justify their decisions, the effect will generally be to pull those decisions toward goodness. So the idea is that a theory of right and open process leads to right and righteous results. Note also, the, you can think about the contrapositive to that. You know, so if it's true that if you have right and open process, then you get good results, you could also say that it's true that if you observe bad results, then there must be bad and not-so-open processes. And so if we observe evil in a system, then we might expect to find, or we should expect to find under this logic, the failure of these procedural rules. We see here a lot of faith and process, uh, not so different from some of the framers of our own constitution who believed that if you could just get the separation of powers right and you divide powers in the right way and you require good procedures, that that's the best way of achieving good results. Okay, second, if you're really concerned about immoral morality, then why turn to positivism, which doesn't concern itself at all with distinguishing moral and immoral rules? So if that's really the concern, positivism doesn't provide you any answers. Third, if you're worried about disloyal agents like corrupt or evil judges taking these principles and running wild with them to do great violence and evil things within the law, he says that positivism presents the much bigger danger there. Under positivism, the law is the law, and just following orders become justifications. And that actually may provide more cover for disloyal agents or people who want to do evil within the legal system. All right, that's the third. Number four, the nature of law, at least as Fuller defines it, requires committing what you want to do into an opinion or statute or regulation. Fuller says there's a natural hesitation to commit plain cruelty into written code. Recall here that Fuller's version of natural law doesn't involve substantive, broad moral principles. It involves the inner morality of the law, a morality of legal process, a morality of how we make law and how we publicize it. And compliance with Fuller's inner morality can help reduce the incidence of cruelty and bad actors because you've got to justify yourself. You have to be open to the people. Okay, fifth, where positivism keeps morality out, the law tends toward formalism. He gives an example of the increasing desire to make use of arbitration outside of the public legal system because where the law becomes more formal, it becomes more insensitive to what people actually want. Whereas arbitration with private judges allows for the possibility of kind of morality-sensitive adjudication. And here, morality in a broad sense, that you can take account of kind of reasonableness and what people want and what people think is good and right. All right, lastly, number six. If you're worried that people will take their religious views or ultimate views of morality and use them to win contested disputes about what we should do in society, 
Well, these clashes of religion and secular principles don't present conflicts of law and morals, he says, but rather they present clashes between two different regimes, each claiming authority, the religious regime on the one hand and the legal regime on the other. He's not talking about that. The morality that Fuller is talking about is not a set of substantive commands issued within a particular system with a point of view, but the quote, generally shared views of right conduct that have grown spontaneously through experience and discussion. Hmm. I wonder what you think about that. He's claiming a very minimal set of procedural requirements that he says reflect what anyone would want in a legal system without trying to settle clashes between different social forces with different ideas about what the good is. Okay. The moral foundations of a legal order. This is the third part. Fuller says that rules of recognition derive their efficacy from general acceptance, right? And I don't think Hart would disagree with that. A rule of recognition is effective to the degree that it is accepted, right? And in fact, it can't even be a rule of recognition unless it's accepted by officials administering it. Fuller asserts, though, that general acceptance can only come from, quote, a perception that they are right and necessary. A perception that these rules of recognition are right and necessary. You're reaching a conclusion that this is the law because you accept these rules, the rule of recognition, and you do so because you perceive that they are right and necessary. So Fuller is arguing that there must be moral criteria for the rule of recognition. There must be moral grounds for law. To accept the rule of recognition is to make a moral judgment. That's Fuller's claim. And if that's true, then there's nothing to Hart's claim that there's no connection between law and morals. Now here I think it's important to note that Hart would not agree with this, in part because he told us in the concept of law to distinguish between accepting law from the internal point of view, which means treating it as a guide to one's conduct and judging law to be morally good or accepting it from a moral point of view. So the distinction he makes is between compliance with a rule, like the rule of recognition, because it is the law, and compliance because of predictions concerning the consequences of the law. All right, so the Holmesian bad man may follow a law because he predicts that bad things will happen if he doesn't, and those bad things are are bad enough so that just following the law, even if he doesn't want to, makes sense. That's different than accepting law from the internal point of view, where you would recognize that the law is the law and follow it for that reason. You accept it as a guide to your conduct rather than as a prediction of what will happen if you don't. But even that, that idea of acceptance, doesn't necessarily mean that the reason that you accept it as a guide is because you agree with it morally. You may disagree with it morally, and yet think, all things considered, it's better to obey the law than not. For Fuller, this is just the latest attempt by positivists to avoid the necessary moral grounding of the law. Our actual practice of written constitutional law, Fuller asserts, accepts the Constitution as good law. So good basic laws for Fuller achieve these eight principles of the inner morality of law rather than trying to dictate good substantive results. And it's on this ground that Fuller criticizes many of the post-war victor-mandated constitutions that tried to lock in substantive goals and, and, and he says reflected some fear of kind of popular lawmaking. Now, the point of this example is to discuss what one has to do If you're making the law, what do you have to do? What do you have to take into account in order to plan to achieve fidelity to the law? And after all, that's what you care about. Like if you're making law, what you care about is that 
the people for whom you're making it, which may include you, feel an obligation to follow the law. Because again, for Fuller, without that moral obligation to follow the law, there is no law. Okay, let's talk about the morality of law itself. There are two senses in which morality is important, necessary in the law, Fuller says. The first is external. It's that the authority to make law must be supported by moral attitudes that approve of it in order for it to be efficacious. Second is what we've already referred to as the inner morality of law. This is the acceptance by the lawmaker of responsibilities to administer law in a particular way. So an inner morality is a criterion for law. And Fuller observes that this inner morality was utterly lacking in the Nazi regime. But you also find its lack and and the need for it in lesser evils. So he gives examples of the lower court judge who labors under a deluded and incompetent Supreme Court. Fuller says that law's inner morality requires the judge to try to write the law in some respect, to make of the law what, and here I quote, it ought to be. Can you think of other examples where you would observe an inner immorality in the law? How would you go about dealing with that situation? Okay, let's look at the next section, section five, the problem of restoring law. It's not just that the Nazi regime did bad things. Fuller observes that there was a fundamental procedural unfairness, including lots of retroactivity, secret laws, acting through unregulated thugs, judicial disregard for statutes. Fuller doesn't regard that kind of system as law at all. Like Hart, Fuller focuses on one of these informant cases involving the Nazis. Here there was a member of the German military who had been away, a suggestion that his wife had been unfaithful while he was away and really wanted to get rid of him. She alleged that he made some negative comments about Hitler's regime. There's a statute, and you can read more about it on page 653. But the upshot is that this statute, which prevents certain kinds of public critiques, was clearly not violated according to its words here. So the wife does this, husband gets a death sentence, is imprisoned for a while, but then is sent back to the front. It's toward the end of the war. And so the death sentence isn't carried out. And now the war is over and the wife is brought up on charges of basically trying to get the husband killed. And her defense is, I was doing what was not only lawful, but legally required at the time. Now, one way of dealing with this case is to say this so-called law with which you were complying was not a law at all. And therefore, you can't raise the defense that you were complying with the law. Another way of dealing with it is to say that while there was a law there, all of these laws were evil laws, and we are going to disregard them. This is an instance where, retroactively, we will change the obligations that we say that you were under, and we do that for good reason. This latter way is kind of the direct way, Hart's way of dealing with morality directly. Fuller, though, says, not so fast. Should we even try to apply these old Nazi laws to determine their legality using Nazi interpretations? To deal with these cases, Fuller says, we don't have to resort to any kind of higher law to say they weren't really law. We just need to notice their utter lack of any kind of inner morality, their utter lack of these basic procedural characteristics with which law is inseparable. Okay, and now it gets a little bit more personal in section six. The question here is a direct one and a troubling one. Did positivism aid the slide in Germany to Nazism? 
Now, Fuller notes the embrace of positivism by Germany before the rise of the Nazis, so they tended to accept that if there was law, which complied with the official requirements for law, then there should be no further moral evaluation of that law. Here's what he says on 659. Hitler didn't come to power by a violent revolution. He was chancellor before he became the leader. The exploitation of legal forms started cautiously and became bolder as power was consolidated. The first attacks on the established order were on ramparts which, if they were manned by anyone, were manned by lawyers and judges. These ramparts fell almost without a struggle. This is a very serious assertion for lawyers, legal academics, judges. It obviously doesn't lay the entire blame for the Holocaust and the atrocities of World War II at the feet of positivists or lawyers or judges, but it does suggest that, in a way, the law was the first line of defense, and it provided no defense at all, partly because a philosophy and theory that accepted law because it's law, without questioning the legality of secret laws or unpublished laws or laws that change or retroactive laws, the inner moral values, without questioning those. Fuller says that an inner moral analysis would have grounded a rejection of Nazi statutes. He thinks this is doubly unfortunate because now the reaction to the horrors of Nazism involve reaching toward a discoverable higher law, the kind of more traditional, more ancient natural law that says there is a basic law discoverable through human reason or moral reasoning that constrains human law. This is the kind of natural law that Fuller rejects, of course. And he rejects it for reasons not so dissimilar from those of positivists, that this kind of natural law is not only ungrounded and probably wrong, but also dangerous. Perhaps it gives too much power to those who wield those moral principles. On 661, Fuller says this, It was in those areas where the ends of law were most odious by ordinary standards of decency that the morality of law itself was most flagrantly disregarded. In other words, where one would have been most tempted to say, this is so evil it can't be law, one could usually have said instead, this thing is the product of a system so oblivious to the morality of law that it's not entitled to be called a law. I think there's something more than accident here, for the overlapping suggests that legal morality cannot live when it's severed from a striving toward justice and decency. Again here, there's this faith that if we can just get the process right, if we can just be open and make people commit in open ways to their preferences, that we can avoid substantive evils. I think I'll end just by noting Fuller's kind of observation or belief that that positivism is based in part on this fear that interpretation, I guess partly meaning judicial power, but that interpretation will be too powerful. He gives this absinthe example on page 670 as an example of maybe one of these fears. The idea is that there's a statutory prohibition of absinthe. You add to that a belief that absinthe is actually a healthy thing. So if you believe that, you will look at this prohibition and you'll think about what this prohibition means in light of your view that absinthe, in fact, is healthy. You'll look at that statute and you might say, and you might see things around it that suggest that its purpose was to promote health. That's why it banned absinthe. But if the purpose is to promote health and you believe that absinthe is healthy, and you believe that any reasonable person would believe it's healthy, then you're going to interpret this statutory ban perhaps to be a requirement that absinthe be sold and consumed everywhere. Now, that's a obviously kind of a cartoonish transformation, but that's the basic principle, right? That you look at a statute, you take 
your preferences and beliefs, you'd commit to inferring some kind of purpose from this statute. And what kind of purposes could it have? They must be reasonable ones. People don't do unreasonable things. You take then your reasonable beliefs and you believe that the statute is trying to further those reasonable beliefs. And you get, in the end, a statute that you interpret to be consistent with your own beliefs. So that's the kind of thing that he thinks positivists really worry about. Okay, so the fundamental question is what it is about what we call law that makes it worthy of obedience. That's it for Fuller, right? That's the question of what law is, is what about these things is it that makes them worthy of obedience? Because without any fidelity, without anyone with any reason to follow them, are they really law? Is there really any law? Even a law that you think is substantively bad, maybe even substantively immoral, you still might recognize an obligation to follow it. Where does that obligation come from? Hart is kind of agnostic about that, believing that you may feel that obligation for all sorts of reasons. Fuller believes that that obligation can only be said to really attach if it's a moral obligation. And it can only be a moral obligation if that law was kind of capable of being followed, if it exhibited the inner morality of the law. All right, I think that's enough. We're going to have a lot to talk about about this piece, I know. So can't wait to hear from you.